the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the top of most of the pop of most. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, what are we going? To the top, Bry. Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Okay. Welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost. I'm Ed Shan. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Our highlight topic for this month is something we've kind of tossed around a little bit through the months on this show. Canada was a very different thing to their reception of the Beatles than the States. It really wasn't until December that things even started to happen here in the States. And in part, that's because the Beatles were on little labels. Capital U.S. wanted nothing to do with them for the majority of the year. But capital of Canada was quite willing to take that chance. Joining us is Piers Hemmingson, author of The Beatles in Canada, Volume 1, which covers roughly 62 to 66. Is that correct? Well, it covers the rise of rock and roll in Canada from the U.S. in the 50s into the rise of the Beatles and then up to the first tour of 64. So September of 64, that's where it ends. Since this is a chart show, why don't we start with how and why did Capital of Canada look at this band? Love Me Do was released fairly early on. Was it late 62 or was it early 63 in Canada? Copies were sent to Capital in Hollywood to Dave Dexter and as well to Paul White in Toronto. So Toronto was like the little engine that could, if you will, for Capital Records. And Dave Dexter, as you just said, passed on it. I don't know what he didn't like about it. Some say he didn't like the harmonica sound. But uh, Paul White listened to it, and he released Love Me Do, backed with PSI Love You, on 18th of February, 63. So it probably sat on his desk for a few weeks over the holidays, and then he decided probably in January to release it. Capitol Records of Canada sort of began its own little life separate from Hollywood in that Paul White, the A&R man at Capitol in Toronto, sort of recommended that Capitol, for Canada anyway, market recordings that were more suited to the Canadian market and not necessarily for the larger U.S. market. At the same time, they were releasing records from the States on the Capitol label, but Paul started his own unique series, and what he was able to do starting in 1961 was get samples of things that were doing really well in the UK that he thought might do well in Canada, because there were so many expatriate people living in Canada who were post-war teens, and he was releasing records by Cliff Richard, Helen Shapiro, some of the even obscure acts. You may have heard of Ray Cathode, which was a pseudonym for George Martin, had a record called Time Beat. If it was top 30 in the UK, Paul was reading the NME, the New Musical Express. He was reading Melody Maker. He was following what was doing well on the EMI side of things that he could release for Canada. So the first uh, chart I was going to talk about was the 5th of February, 63. So this is a couple of weeks before Love Me Do is released. And he's got records in the top 30 across Canada, uh, places like London, Ontario, or Vancouver, British Columbia. So he's got Cliff Richards' Wonderful to be Young in the top 30. And he's got Helen Shapiro's Keep Away from Other Girls. Uh, so these are like uh, records that aren't going to be released on Capitol in the States, but they're going to be targeting teens in Canada. So that's February the 5th. If we hop to the 18th of February, Paul White releases a couple of new records. One is Love Me Do, PSI Love You. That's their first Capitol record. That gets sent out to about 200 radio stations across Canada. And the first radio station to chart 
Love Me Do in Canada, and I can't find anything before this. This is information nobody's seen yet. It's going to be in the forthcoming book. Love Me Do is a new entry at number 42 on a radio station called CFMB, uh, short for, uh, I guess, Montreal Broadcasting, uh, in Montreal, Quebec. And that's February 27th, 63. So just snuck in under the wire before the end of February. That is the first entry I can find anywhere of Love Me Do in North America. And a few days later, March the 3rd, so the very next week, journalist from Scotland has emigrated to Canada, Ontario, and he's working for the Ottawa Journal writing a pop column. He actually publishes in his weekly pop column a review of Love Me Do in the Ottawa Journal dated March 3rd, 1963. His sort of catchphrase was, the Beatles will crawl into the charts, which is, I guess, meant to be a funny joke on the name Beatles. Uh, so I'd say between the 18th of February and the 27th of February of 63, those are like momentous, tiny, tiny references, but they are a the earliest chart entry, and B, the earliest and first review of a Beatles record in the press in Canada, certainly. I don't know if anything was earlier in the States, but that's pretty darn early for Canada. We had Love Me Do in, on February the 18th. We had Please Please Me on April the 1st on Capitol. Then we had From Me to You in early June. And then we had She Loves You on September 25th. Please Please Me was charted in Canada, not widely, but it did a little better than Love Me Do in terms of charts. So on the 10th of April in Hamilton, Ontario, Please Please Me is a new entry on a radio station called CKOC. That's in Hamilton, Ontario. So that's an early entry for Please Please Me. It doesn't do so well. Out in uh, Alberta, there's a chart for uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is in northern Alberta. I don't know what they were doing out there, but they were playing Please Please Me. And it almost looks to me like they were following the WLS, Chicago charts. I think that was a practice in Canada. Radio stations after the war in the United States, like Chicago, Boston, New York City, and Buffalo, of course, they amped up their broadcasting to something like 50,000 watts. So we had the benefit of that in Canada in that we could get our transistor radios in the evening, and because of the uh, gravitational force of the moon, it would flatten these radio waves, and they would go longer. So we could pick up WLS in Chicago. We could pick up the WKBW out of Buffalo, and of course, the big New York stations. So I think some of these smaller radio stations were tuned in to the charts of the big broadcasting U.S. stations. So I think the Grand Prairie, Alberta, probably didn't have a single copy of Please Please Me in a record shop in Grand Prairie, but they listed it because it was listed by WLS. Fascinating. So they were definitely influenced by American stations. I think so. And then we sort of go from April 63, Please Please Me charts in a couple of places, Vancouver charts, How Do You Do It by Jerry and the Pacemakers on Capitol Records on Vancouver's CFUN. 14 C fun Vancouver. That's in May, end of May, beginning of June. How high in the chart did it go? How do you do it? The highest it got to in Vancouver was the week of May 25th, 63. It was number four. It was a pretty big hit. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, wow. the Beatles turned that one down. Canada is a big country with a small population, but of course, every city had its own musical taste driven by A, what the disc jockeys were feeding the listeners. Vancouver was right on the border of Washington, Seattle. Maybe somebody in Seattle was playing. I don't know. But generally, that's how rock and roll came to Canada, was through the air from the United States. In this case, Vinyl was being pressed in Canada for a Canadian market, and some of these were slipping into the, the top 30. You may know the name Del Shannon. He was a sure. big pop star in the States. He was on tour with the Beatles in England in early 63. He heard the Beatles perform a new song called From Me to You, 
Kit will know this. It was at the Royal Albert Hall. I'm not sure yes, the date. Uh, he went up to John Lennon. He said, I like that song. Can I record it? And John said, why not? Sure. John never told Brian Epstein that he was going to do it. And then lo and behold, out it comes in Canada on quality records. I think it was on Big Top in the States. And across Canada, radio stations had this thing called a battle of the bands. So if they had two new records, and in this case, two different people, two different artists doing the same song, they would run it against each other on the radio and ask their listeners who they preferred. Well, in the case of From Me to You, Del Shannon was an established name in the pop arena in Canada. So a lot of people went out and bought the Del Shannon version and really derailed the Beatles version. But uh, From Me to You by the Beatles did chart in Winnipeg, in Vancouver, and Toronto charted Mm -hmm. uh, From Me to You, but only by Del Shannon. It did very well in Winnipeg. Geographically, Winnipeg is the center of Canada. I'm not sure the state below it, North Dakota, possibly. So I'm going through here now uh, July of 63. From Me to You by Del Shannon is a new entry. Where are the Beatles? Vancouver, 6th of July, they are charting From Me to You by both Del Shannon and the Beatles together at number 32. Wow. And then the highest it got to in Vancouver, it looks like Del Shannon edged out the Beatles because his version of From Me to You got up to number 14. There it starts to fall. But another Liverpool artist, we mentioned Jerry and the Pacemakers. Another one is is our good pal, Billy J. Kramer. Mm -hmm. And he charts in Toronto with Do You Want to Know a Secret in August of 63. So this is before She Loves You is released. I remember being at one of the fests and talking about how Billy J. Kramer had charted in Canada in the summer of 63. And there was a guy at the back of the room waving his hand. And he said, that's my record. It was Billy J. And he said one thing he liked about Canada is they always sent his checks on time. He always <laughs> he got paid for whatever meager number of records they were selling, but he was very happy about that. So, <laughs> yay Canada! Might it have been the Canadian reception that convinced Brian to go to New York and try and sell Billy J? That has always seemed a little bit odd to me that it was Billy J that Brian was trying to sell. Well, that does seem odd, but you've hit a point there. Maybe because he was on Capitol Records, Brian was using anything he could to twist the arm of the larger organization in Hollywood to get the Beatles, or they also, of course, turned down Billy J and Jerry and the Pacemakers and, you know, whoever else. The only one I think Dave Dexter signed in 63 was uh, Freddie and the Dreamers. Wow. There was at least some success, but it it still all kind of changed as we got toward the later part of the year, towards September, and She Loves You came out. So by November, it was really starting to make a move in the Canadian charts. Let me just stop you there, because we're going to get there. You want chart information that really is Mm -hmm. got some spice to it. September 8th of 63, the week of 8th of September to 14th of September, there's a chart in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And I looked at this thing. It just really stuck out with me. They listed From Me to You by the Beatles at number one. Wow. This was was the very first chart I came across where the Beatles were at number one in Canada, obviously, and in North America. So I found it hard to believe, but Sault Ste. Marie is way, way up at the top of Lake Michigan and where it meets uh, Lake Superior. Welcome to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Population around 75,000. It resides on the border and just across the border is its sister city, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Sault Ste. Marie is seven and a half hours from Thunder Bay, three and a half hours from Sudbury, five hours from North Bay, eight and a half hours from Ottawa, and seven hours from Toronto. They had a radio station and the Beatles were at number one with From Me To You. So take that, Del Shannon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My gosh. Yeah. Was was Capital of Canada putting any real promotion behind it or was this all just basically word of mouth and people listening to, to the record saying, I like that. I think it's more the latter because from my experience being being a kid in the 60s and hearing the Beatles records when they came out, you had to hear it on the radio before you thought, ah, 
I want to buy that so I can play it anytime sure. I want to hear it. Right. Right. I don't want to wait until the radio plays it again. I want to hear that record over and over and over again. So the record company capital mails out a copy of what they think each station wants to hear or play. You had this buckshot type of approach. You just blast it out. And if, if somebody likes it and they spin it, Paul White had this incredible sizzle sheet that he would send out to every radio station every week. And he would say, this is what we're putting out. And these are the other stations that are playing it. And these are the other charts, you know, in other cities that have charted this individual Capitol record. So he was always plugging the Beatles in his weekly sizzle sheet. It's likely that somebody at CKCY in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, was reading the sizzle sheet and picked up on whatever Paul White was plugging for the Beatles. So I have a quote here from somebody who was around at that time. Uh, I'll just read you a little bit. It says, I was part of the gang at CKLB in Oshawa, Ontario, and on the afternoon show played the Beatles, and mostly to try and compete with Chum Toronto for listeners. When I came to CFMB in Montreal for their opening debut in March of 63, I played and charted Love Me Do. So I referred to that at the beginning of this episode as really the first chart entry for the Beatles I could find anywhere. Mm. So if you had somebody like that working out of Montreal who knew about the Beatles in, let's say, end of February of 63, there were people following the Beatles as records came out. As Paul White told me, Love Me Do may have sold 71 copies but Please Please Me did another 150 copies. And by the time you get to From Me to You, they're doing about 1,000, 1,500 copies of the record. It doesn't sound like much compared to the States, but the other thing about it was that there were kids coming back from England, like my family. We came back to England in August of 63. We had our Beatle records with us. It was word of mouth. You'd say, have you heard of the Beatles? And they say, no, we haven't. And it was like they were from outer space until, of course, Ed Sullivan. I'm going to now go back to what Ed was talking about in September of 63. Earliest I've got for She Loves You is 25th of October. So the record's released at the end of September on the 25th of September. But radio stations are slow to pick up on She Loves You, even though it rocketed to number one in the UK. It was slow. Capital was still plugging the Beatles, and they pressed a 1,000 copies, and they mailed 200 out to the radio stations. She Loves You was picked up in Hamilton. It was picked up in Winnipeg. It was picked up in Port Arthur, Ontario, which is now called Thunder Bay. Home of Paul Schaefer. Home of Paul <laughs> Schaefer. There you go. I did speak with Paul Schaefer about the Beatles, of course. They had their own... I think it's called CFPR in Port Arthur. And they were early on to the Beatles up there. So I think it had to do with kids coming back from the UK, visiting there for the summer, bringing records back. Mike Myers has several of those stories because his family would go back. And of course, his parents had a Liverpool connection. So. Yes. All right. My parents are from Liverpool, England. And uh, wow. the Beatles represent the best of our gene pool, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just... And just that kind of show business, that kind of, you know, that just brilliance of being an entertainer that's just at once, everybody can love the Beatles. And, you know, I think they're underrated. You know what I mean? It's, no, it's, absolutely. It's, I think his father or mother, they, they brought goon records with them. And he loved the goons, Mike Myers. Sure. I mean, he was obviously inspired by the goons. So we get to uh, Port Arthur again, 23rd of November, 63. She Loves You is at number 21. So they're doing really well in these odd places, but it's not until the end of October, really, and that's when Canadian teenagers get to see the Beatles. You don't see a picture of the Beatles in the Canadian press in the main, like the major newspapers, until the end of October, and that's when... Um, this Beatlemania really erupts in, in England and elsewhere. And the Beatles are on tour in Sweden. And the first picture we get to see in the big newspapers in Canada is a picture of 
uh, girls, you know, literally hugging and holding on to the Beatles when they're on stage in Sweden. We didn't see a picture of the Beatles in England. We saw a picture of the Beatles in uh, Sweden. If it wasn't the front page, it was on the first couple of pages of the Toronto Star, I think the Montreal Star, the Montreal Gazette, and other uh, papers that were picking up the stories. In those days, for those that are interested, the Canadian press had a bureau in London, England. But when they filed their stories back to Canada, they used the Associated Press. So everything went to Canada, but it it, like a hockey stick, it went to New York City first and then up to Canada. So somebody should write a book about how the press worked in those days because Reuters, Associated Press, all of these big bureaus were picking up on Beatlemania uh, by the end of October of 63. And then you have some of the American television networks uh, sent people over to the UK to interview the Beatles, as I remember. Yeah, it may well have been those news stories which convinced the networks, hey, this is a story we should cover. I mean, that's always seemed a little bit strange to me. Why exactly did CBS send (laughs) this crew out to, and why did they pick up this bit of film footage? It's like, well, okay, Beatleland to a United States where that meant nothing at the time. Yeah, I think they went to somewhere in, in the West Country in England, and maybe Martin knows where it is. I don't know. I think it might have been Portsmouth or Southampton. I don't know. But there was an American, it was like CBS or ABC right. or NBC, I don't know. One of them interviewed them in the band room after one of their concerts. Yeah, there was a CBS and there was an ABC. Okay. Uh, both of them had sent crews. The CBS one is what we frequently see and what shows up in eight days a week. The other night, the Beatles played Bournemouth, the South Coast family resort, and Bournemouth will never be the same. Reporter Josh Darsa talked to the Beatles in their dressing room. What has occurred to you as to why you've succeeded? Uh, I don't know, really. You know, as you say, the haircuts. We didn't think they were a gimmick, but everyone else said, oh, what a gimmick. What is the Mercy sound? How does it differ from other rock and roll and pop? Uh, it doesn't really. It, it just happened that all of a sudden, uh, hundreds of rock groups, all from Liverpool, made records, and it was a bit more like the original rock and roll than the stuff they've had over the last few months. So what happens is that the Beatle records that were issued in Canada started with Love Me Do, then Please Please Me, then From Me to You, and then She Loves You, the first four singles. EMI never sent uh, master tapes for these recordings. They sent Paul White a box of Parlophone singles or Columbia or HMV, and Paul would have to listen to 20 or 25 singles in a box And when he decided he was going to issue something for his capital label, he hired a local studio run by RCA Victor to dub the Parlophone single to a tape of which then was made a Lacquer Master. So the first four Canadian singles weren't uh, made from uh, master tapes. They were dubbed from the Parlophone singles that were sent over. And Kit, you remember meeting Jeff Emmerich yeah. In his wonderful book, Here, There, and Everywhere, he talks about how he started on the other side of the ocean. His job was to dub Motown singles that were going to be released by EMI on the stateside label for the UK. So he was over there doing dubbing while other people in North America were dubbing product from the UK and elsewhere. So it's kind of interesting when the Beatles do eventually take off with She Loves You. I believe after the first 1,000 copies, Paul White would have decided we need to get the master for this because for whatever reason, he may have thought that dubbing the single didn't get the sound across that he knew was in the grooves. So he orders a master tape from the UK and then they quickly repress the single. I believe they repressed it in either late October, early November. So the first pressings are nigh on impossible to find. 99% of them are the second pressings. And I think it may have had a little bit to do with first pressings. Maybe they didn't sound so good relative to what they thought they could sound like. So all of a sudden, you get into late November, you start to see She Loves You, 
as a new entry, which is funny because it's, as I said to Ed a few minutes ago, it was released at the end of September. And radio stations obviously either didn't play it or filed it away. So Paul White wrote in his sizzle sheet, he said, dig out your copy. If you can't find it, we'll send you another one. So another 200 promo copies of She Loves You went out again uh, sometime in October. And that is when it starts to get some traction. So by December of 63, it's number one in London, Ontario. So on the 25th of November of 63, one business day after With the Beatles is issued in the UK, Beatlemania with the Beatles, the same album, is issued in Canada on the Monday, November 25th, 63. So it's a funny thing because even though She Loves You still wasn't quite at number one, Paul White gambled and said, I'm going to release the album. He could see something happening and he thought, in those days, all the money was made in advance of Christmas and the holiday season. They ended up pressing 50,000 copies of that Beatlemania by the Beatles or with the Beatles album. So in one sense, you would ask, why didn't they include She Loves You on that album? Or B, why didn't they issue I Want to Hold Your Hand as the fifth single? And therein is the departure point. You've got Canada issuing every single the same as the UK up and until and after She Loves You. And all of a sudden, uh, Paul White decides the fifth single is going to be a single taken to promote the album. So he takes Roll Over Beethoven, which is a George Harrison vocal, right. as the A side, and Please Mr. Postman as the B side. And that becomes their fifth single in Canada. And that's released, I think, on December the 9th. 63. So when was I Want to Hold Your Hand finally issued in Canada? Not until uh, January 11th, because She Loves You was still climbing the charts, and Paul White thought, well, why would I cannibalize the sales? Let's let She Loves You run to the top. He kind of pushed off I Want to Hold Your Hand as long as he could, even though there were radio stations like Chum in Toronto that went ahead and played the U.S. Capitol single, much to the annoyance of Capitol Records. Then Capitol U.S. would be annoyed at Roll Over Beethoven when exactly. it would chart in the States <laughs> exactly. in a couple of months. It was sort of like a funny trajectory between Canada and the U.S. And eventually, as we all know, I Want to Hold Your Hand was a song that kind of harmonized it because released by Capital of Canada with the same catalog number, etc., uh, etc. Et and the, all the Sullivan mania would cross the border. I mean, we had you on uh, when yeah. they was fab and, and we talked all about that. Yes. And so that's really an amazing story. It's great that you found so much more detail on how they did in the Canadian charts through 63. Kit, you got any last questions for Piers before we uh, let him go and move on with the British countdown for this month? Piers, I'm so glad you've told this story because it's just fascinating how Beatlemania reached Canada long before America. And I'm just so glad that you told this fascinating story in your book. One thing I wanted to ask you is you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit when you mentioned Cliff Richard, Helen Shapiro. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing we we've talked about a lot on our show is what the charts look like here in America before the Beatles hit. Our charts were a little, shall we say, hit or miss, <laughs> but you know, musically. In Canada, what were some of the trends for the Beatles hit? Would, would you say, like, you know, here it was, you know, folk, it was surf music, that kind of thing. Were there differences? The bulk of the records on the charts were from the States. So just in front of uh, She Loves You, you had the singing nun by uh, yeah. Stuart Surreer. Like, I was a kid and I, riding around in, in my parents' car and that was on all the time. It's like, how many times could they play that? <laughs> and uh, yes. you had, you know, Al Hurt, trumpet singles that were popular, the rooftop singers, Walk Right In, as you said, folk, Kingston Trio. You yep. had all the Bobbies, Bobby Vinton, Blue Velvet, you know, the Beach Boys were yeah. always popular in Canada right from the get-go. Again, Capitol Records. And I remember Paul White telling me that, I said, Paul, what, who's your favorite group? You know, not your favorite artist, because his favorite artist was Nat King Cole. 
He said mm. it was the Beach Boys, not the Beatles. He loved the Beach Boys, and he promoted the heck out of the Beach Boys. Uh, they toured Canada, and maybe for a later show, there's one special day in Canada, uh, which was the day of the last Beatles concert in 66 in Toronto. It was August the 17th, and on the very same day, the Beach Boys also were playing in Canada. So on the same day, you had the Beach Boys in Canada and the Beatles in Canada, and Paul White was just a huge booster of both. Obviously, he did better with the Beatles than he did the Beach Boys, but for some reason, he loved the Beach Boys. I think they were so upbeat. They, it got the kids going, and they sold records by the truckload. So, I mean, from the sounds of it, the Canadian charts were just the perfect combination of both the American and the British charts. That would sum it up. All right. Thank you, Pierce. We're so glad you were able to come on and tell us this. We've been wondering about the Canadian charts, and it's great that there's just so much more detail. We've now got so much more color and feel for what it looked like in your country at the time, and yeah, it wasn't that different. Well, I, the one thing I would say is that we got the billboard, we got the cash box, and of course, Capitals, Paul White, he got those every week, but he also got the Melody Maker and the New Musical Express. And we did have a radio show on CFRB in Toronto called Calling All Britons, which would play new records coming from England. So there was a very large expat base, kid traffic going back and forth across the Atlantic. So as you say, it was a perfect combination of getting the best of both worlds. If, remember, February 63, when Love Me Do came out here it was a freezing Same. month and just like i'm freezing here in my office tonight it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> it is cold up here so to our listeners out there if you don't have it buy the red book you will find out yes. m so much more about the beatles in 1962 63 64 and even a little bit beyond the first book takes you all the way up through the butcher cover in canada which in and of itself is a fascinating story nice story yeah we got the butcher. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Pierce. Okay. We're, you know, we're, we're glad to have you. I'm sure we'll come up with another Canadian topic here somewhere. And we'll be glad to have you back. And I'll be looking forward to it. Well, it's amazing. Every time we do a feature here, we keep coming up with ideas for new podcasts. There is definitely a podcast to be had uh, talking about Canada, the Beatles, and Beatlemania. Well, how would you do that then? Well, I actually have a thought. When we started coming up with Choppermost of the Poppermost, we were thinking the same thing. How do we do it? As we were experienced with online recording through Zencaster, we looked at what the service provided in their own podcast hosting services. Already through our own experiences of using their online recording for the show when they was fab, which Ed has presented for many years now, we were already aware of their ability to provide separate recordings for each participant, all of which are recorded on each person's own devices in order to cut down on any signal degradation. The automated editing is helpful, even though we still do more editing afterwards. It still helps, though, by cutting down the time spent on editing by a number of hours. As with a few services, it places the episodes onto all streaming providers, and their online diagnostics are easy to use. With the recording process and the editing services provided, you have everything you need to create, edit, and distribute your podcast every step of the way at an affordable price. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TOPPERMOST, T-O-P-P-E-R-M-O-S-T, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. We're going to start in the month of December on the British charts. The Beatles did a very special edition of Jukebox Jury from Liverpool on December the 7th, 1963. They also did a live concert. Well, the concert wasn't live, but uh, they filmed a concert, and that was also aired on British television. We're going to start with some of the songs which the Beatles spoke of that didn't make the charts. First up is Billy Fury's Do You Really Love Me? Do you really love me too, Ringo? Not you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't like it, you know, I... I've never bought, I'm sorry, I've never bought one of his records. He's very popular, so should sell. You don't like it? No. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. Ouch. Ooh. I bet that made Billy furious. <laughs> John. Not for me. Um, it was not bad, but... <clears throat> uh, you know, it was okay, but I wouldn't buy it. And I thought the uh, guitar, the phrase of the guitar, it's just exactly the same as Cliff's. Um, his one, you know, in fact, there's only a, a note different. But, I mean, that's, I don't suppose that makes any difference. Yeah, but yeah. it's nice to hear you talking about that because you really know about these things. Well, it all about da da dee dee Have you by any chance got some friends out there? I don't yeah. know. John said... Uh, the, the tune's not bad, but I don't like gallop tunes. You know, jim to lim to lim. It's not funny, that. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Paul was his usual um, trying to be nice to everybody by saying... I quite liked it, and same things as John said go for me too. But the only thing I thought, as well as the... Uh, guitar bit being like the Cliff Richard bit. The other, the, the tune, I don't know if anyone knows this, I, I thought it was just a little bit like, will I feed the cows and I milk the sheep tonight? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like that one. It is, it is actually. It is. <laughs> but, but, but I still think it'll be a hit. Yeah, well, let's vote it then. Do you really love me to buy Billy Fury? Hits or a miss, Jerry? Ah, they say it will be. They say it will indeed be a hit. The second record that they reviewed that we'll mention up front, we're going to talk a lot about this Jukebox Jury show because a lot of the records that we chose to discuss are some of the same ones that were played on that show, was a record by a group called the Orchids, a British-based group of three, oh, I would say they look like maybe 17 or 18-year-old girls. Coventry schoolgirls called the Orchids on Love Hit Me. And you know, John, he cuts right to the chase, calls it just a big con, a pinch from the crystals and Ronettes. And it is. I mean, it's not a bad record, but it is very much let's do the Phil Spector thing. Yep. Or let's try to do the Phil Spector thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul then goes on, well, I guess it's good for a British record. Yep, kind of a half-hearted compliment. Yeah, I like Ringo, you know, it'll sell a few, but not that many. Tough room. <laughs> and then George closes up the Beatles' thoughts on this record with, well, I'd rather have British groups pinch from the crystals than the other stuff. <laughs> Another kind of backhanded uh, compliment. It was voted three to one a yep. miss, but there was a, a little surprise for the boys. Yep. It was then revealed that the orchids were there in the audience. Oh, God. Which, yeah. Ouch. Which was described by Lennon as a lousy trick. <laughs> He's not wrong. No. That must have been embarrassing. <sighs> so among the other songs, the new Mersey Beast record, I think of you, was voted unanimously favorable. Broken Home by Shirley Jackson, Where Have You Been All My Life by Gene Vincent, and Long Time Ago by The Bachelors were each discussed by The Beatles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they judged each of them to be hits. So, all right, we start with the week of the 5th of December, 1963. At number one, after a little spot away from the top spot, is She Loves You, number one this week, and it would fall to number two for the remaining three weeks of the month of December. At number four, You'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers, just starting its way down the charts, four to eight to 12 to 12. At number six, I'll Keep You Satisfied by Billy J. Kramer, six to 11 to 16. Then a slight tick back up to number 13. At number seven, a song we discussed before, but got omitted for time purposes, Maria Elena by Los Indios, Trabajas. Uh, it's interesting because it is kind of a predecessor of world music. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a good way to describe it. And and it also was kind of on trend, you know, with Mexican sound and, and so forth. So kind of an interesting addition. And we're going to see other examples of early entries of, of world music as we go along. At number eight, Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five, which we kind of float around the top ten for the rest of the month, eight to nine to four to six. At number nine, Dusty Springfield's I Only Want to Be With You, uh, which would also float around the top ten for the month, nine to seven to six to five. And at number ten, the new song from those boys from Liverpool, I Want to Hold Your Hand, debuting at number ten. Wow. Wow. And then it would rise from number 10 and stay at number one for the rest of the month of December. And Martin, it's a banger. It's a banger. (laughs) (laughs) We will discuss I Want to Hold Your Hand more next month because, well, it has even bigger things ahead of it. Indeed. Okay, at number 11, Be My Baby, which is on the way down, 11 to 21 to 29 to 38. At number 13, Sugar and Spice by The Searchers. Also on its way down, 13 to 25 to 28 to 30. At number 16, I Want to Be Your Man by The Stones, which would kind of flip around in the top 20, 16 to 15 to 13 to 14. At number 24, a song which we spoke of with Pierce over on the top of the show, and we've talked about it a little bit on the American side, Dominique, the singing nun, which would rise from 24 to 10 to 8, to seven. Dominique et les Péniques s'en allaient tout simplement routiers, pauvres et chantants. En tout chemin, en tout lieu, ils ne parlent que du bon Dieu, ils ne parlent que du bon Dieu. Not a banger. Uh, more a clanger than a banger. <laughs> It's not really a terrible song. No, I I mean, it's, yeah. It is what it is. I still don't kind of get why it was such a big hit. No, I don't either. I'm not sure which one I'd pick between this and a song by Alvin and the Chipmunks, really. Oh! I I think that's being a little bit harsh. (laughs) Okay, at number 28, Geronimo by The Shadows, which would rise from 28 to 13 to 11 to 11. I'm not a fan. It's more or less the standard Shadows style. The American Indian sort of feel is not great. Yeah. I like the lead guitar on it, but other than that, I know we've said this many times, it's no Apache. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've got a nice comment from my other half, Louise. You'll like this one, Kit. Yep. She says, it's a hard Gironi no from me. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Speaking of Record Mirror, they wrote of Geronimo that it had an Apache beat in the background and the whole thing moves along smoothly. Maybe not up to the standard of some of their previous hits, but cleverly played with a driving beat. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned Nori Paramore, George Martin's uh, arch rival. Ah, yes. yes. It's well produced. I mean, I don't hate it or anything, but it's just not as exciting as some of their previous work. I mean, it's just okay. Yeah. And the disc review by Don Nickel is decidedly politically incorrect, <laughs> where he tells us that the song gallops along well in the spirit of its red Indian title. Oh my god. No, thank you. Wow, that hasn't aged well. No. Moving on. (laughs) At number 37, it's a Christmas record. It is perhaps the first Beatles novelty record that we are to see on the charts. All I Want for Christmas is a Beatle by Dora Bryan, which would rise from number 37 to number 24 to number 21 to number 20. I can't wait for Christmas Day to come Cause all I want for Christmas is a beetle Oh, the girls are really going to love me When I introduce him as my Christmas toy
I was looking up information on Dora Bryant because when I heard this, I thought, wow, I mean, that voice is like something out of like a music hall performance. And sure enough, she is a stage performer. And in fact, she was encouraged when she first started to adopt a stage name by none other than Noel Coward. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. And I mean, she appeared in, in musicals on the stage in England, you know, gentlemen prefer blondes, hello Dolly, Pygmalion, the list goes on and on. I mean, she's been in Stephen Sondheim musicals, so she clearly was just a, a real star of the stage. And she recorded some singles, including this one. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a novelty single. I had always kind of thought that this was a little girl scene. When I looked up the same information you did, it's like she was 40 years old when she recorded this? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. There is a connection, isn't there? Because she was in the film version of the film A Taste of Honey. Oh, wow. There you go. And there is one line out of the lyrics I want to point out. Tell mom there are four so she can get one, too. Well, (laughs) considering the stories we are to hear about Australia later in 1964, that has aged oddly. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) It became almost a bit of a sort of a social status symbol to have bedded a beetle. Malcolm Searle, the TV compere of the time, and a disc jockey told me the story about a Turak socialite in Melbourne who accompanied her teenage daughter into the Beatles suite to ensure that there was no uh, hanky-panky going on. And that within minutes, both mother and daughter were being entertained by a Beatle on enjoining beds. Uh, I bet they never went home and told Daddy about that one. On to the second week of December, December the 12th, 1963. As mentioned, I Want to Hold Your Hand was holding down the top spot. She loves you had fallen down to number two. Two. At number 41, we have the Hippie Hippie Shake by the Swinging Blue Jeans, which goes from number 41 to number 27 to number 23 through the month of December. It's a good, solid version. The Beatles version is better, I think. I think so, but I like this version. I absolutely think they capture what it would have sounded like as they played it in the cavern, and I can definitely imagine what it sounded like when they played it live and the crowd going crazy and i've always liked this version obviously beatles version is raucous and raw and everything this this might be a little more polished but i like this version it's the first version i ever heard of it so yeah me too i I like this version a lot and Mm -hmm. agree it doesn't rock as much as the beatles version did live Mm -hmm. i mean i've always thought Uh, Since I first heard the Beatles cover version of it, I've always thought, much like some other Beatles songs, it's a shame that the Beatles never actually recorded it in the studio and released it officially. Yeah, because it's such a good rocker. And they could have done it in their stage shows. As this kind of song, you know, you can tell just blew the roof off the place when they played it. I mean, you could hear the girls just screaming. Well, I mean, it meant enough for them that in 2008, when Paul McCartney played the opening show when Liverpool was named the City of the Arts for the year 2008, he opened that show with Hippie Hippie Shake. Yeah, I I think it was definitely a favorite with Liverpool groups of the time. You can see why. You can tell. It got the crowd going. Just listening to it, you can imagine that it did. But I've always liked this version. And the boys reviewed it on that Jukebox Jury show. Ringo starts out with saying that it's good, but not as good as the original by Chan Romero. Which is great, too. I like the Chan Romero version a lot. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Then George continues, it's a popular song around Liverpool. We used to do it. It could be a hit. (laughs) Wow. Throwing a little shade there, George. Just a little bit. Then John makes kind of a weird comment. Uh, Yeah, I I think it'll be a hit because they uh, sort of nearly made it with the last one, or one, and it's better, and it's it's better without that banjo. And uh, I like Bill Harry's version as well. (laughs) I think it'd be, be, uh, you know, small hit, at least. That's some kind of joke about Bill Harry. I don't know what John's on about here. In joke. Okay. Oh, dear. I guess. If Paul McCartney wants to contact us and tell us what the joke's about, can he, he contact <laughs> us, please? Paul wow. closes out with, once again, Diplomatic Paul. Doesn't matter about Chan Romero's disc. Nobody remembers Chan Romero. It's Ouch. as good as a new song. 
Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Ooh. I mean, kind of complimenting the swing blue jeans, but then <laughs> dissing Chan Romero. Wow. Yeah. Yikes. And we also get an answer to a question we had in one of our previous episodes. Whatever happened to the brothers, Joe Brown's backing band? Well, one of them would go on to play with Lonnie Donian and then go on to join the Swinging Blue Jeans. Wow. wow. That is Peter Oakman, the guitar player for the Brothers. Mm. Wow. So there you go. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. At number 46, Kansas City by Trini Lopez, which we have discussed before on the American side, 46 to 41 to 35 to 42. That's about where it belongs. In the 30s and 40s, it's an okay song, but it's no patch on any of the other versions of Kansas City. No, yep. definitely Kansas not. City. Yeah, Kansas City. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to Trini Lopez fans. Yeah. <laughs> an apology late. Here we go. <laughs> All right. On to the 19th of December, 1963. Again, I want to hold your hand in the top slot. She loves you at number two. Glad all over at number four. At number 25, the next song from Elvis, Kiss Me Quick. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, mm, kiss me quick. I just can't stand this waiting. Cause your lips are lips I long to know. More of the Bing Crosby from Elvis. Yeah, not a big fan. This was written by Doc Palmas. Well, and it's a song which Elvis had recorded in 61. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has the Latin beat that was very hot at the time. You know, we've talked about that many times on this show. It's very commercial. It's definitely not one of his best. And it doesn't even have the campy quality of something like Viva Las Vegas. Because, like, Viva Las Vegas is corny and all, but at least it has kind of a catchy beat to it. As I said, it has sort of a campy appeal. This doesn't. I mean, it's just... Maybe slightly better than Bossa Nova, baby. Yeah, maybe maybe a little better. I agree. But other than that, not great. Yeah, it's a shame, really. I actually am quite a fan of the album. It comes off Potluck. There's some better songs on there than mm-hmm. this as if people couldn't get the latino feel the the claves are to the fore on this where you can hear those you know wooden sticks called claves hitting each other quite right. loud in the mix mm-hmm. exactly that's right in case you missed it <laughs> and the beatles themselves they were given this song on the december 7th jukebox jury none of them have any really nice things to say about it paul tells us that what I don't like about Elvis are his songs. Yeah. Ooh, I like his voice. This song reminds me of Blackpool on a sunny day. Yeah. <laughs> Explain that a little bit, uh, Martin. There's a nice bit about Blackpool on that episode of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, isn't there, where he explains about the Magical Mystery Tour and says Blackpool. Yeah, that's true, there. yes. And it's like a seaside resort where people go for a holiday. And what he means is sort of like the music that plays in the background that is sort of innocuous and a bit, you don't really notice it so much. Oh, okay. I figured it meant like not hip. (laughs) And then Ringo, good Lord. Last two years, Elvis has been going down the nick. Yeah. Even though that's not American slang, I think we can figure out what that means. Along the lines of down the pan, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Then George also, if he's going back to old tracks, why not release My Baby Left Me? It'd be a number one. Elvis is great. His songs are rubbish. Well, sorry, Elvis fans, but Paul and George were kind of right at this point. Elvis was great. His voice was great. Great entertainer, but it was the material he was getting at this point. I like that John gets a bit of a joke in with his response. Yeah. Go ahead and read it. Go ahead. It'll be a hit. I quite like those hats with Kiss Me Quick written on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know what that was, but you go on eBay and you look, they are still a thing, apparently. Yes, it, much like the Blackpool thing, I think he was probably carrying on from what Paul said. You can go to these resorts and you buy hats that say Kiss Me Quick on the front and it's sort of like, Almost like British cheeky humor, shall we say. Ah. There's a cowboy hat I found on eBay 
Great for stag and hen parties. That tells you all you need to know about those Kispy Quick Hats. Gotcha. At number 38, an old Buddy Holly song, What to Do, it would go from 38 to number 29. It's a great song, but I don't know why it's charting again here. This isn't even the overdub version. This is the original version. Love Buddy Holly's voice on this. Beautiful, beautiful vocal, soft. It's a great song. And I know I've probably said this many times, but just shows you what a big star that he would have become. He had such a gift for songwriting, you know, such a, a ear for a hook. The record hooks and the happy times we had. The soda shot, the walks to school, now make me sad. Oh, what to do? I know my heartache's showing. Still not knowing what to do. You know, I wonder why it was released in the original form but great song i'm glad you mentioned that ed about it not being the overdubbed version because i'm not as big a fan of the overdubbed version as this version Mm -hmm. it's odd and then at number 39 run run rudolph or run rudolph run which at this point was a five-year-old chuck berry song Mm -hmm. i mean yeah granted the british have a thing for bringing back holiday records as mentioned For Halloween, Ghostbusters was back in the charts this year. But still, it's like, well, that's interesting. Yep. Great song, though. I play this every year. Said Santa to a boy child, what have you been longing for? All I want for Christmas is a rock and roll electric guitar. Chuck Berry, very clever lyrics, great guitar solo. Run, run, Rudolph, reeling like a merry-go-round. Interesting, though, you know, obviously Chuck Berry wrote the lyrics, but it's actually credited to Johnny Marks because he sued when the song first came out because he invented the character of Rudolph. Oh. And, and so I guess when this song came out, he said, no, that's his character. Chuck Berry violated copyright. And so when you, you see... You gotta share the royalties. You gotta yep. share the royalties. Yep. And of course, Chuck Berry was livid and said he had nothing to do with the song and blah, blah, blah. But it was his character. It's, it's one of those songs where, you know, you hear it. You know, the season is here. Exactly. Um, At number 45, There I Said It Again by Bobby Venn. It would be at 45 the next week. It's not a great song. I just heard Martin sigh, so uh, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. What uh, did you think? I love you. No use to pretend. There I said it again. I said it. What more can I say? This is a perfect song for dropping to sleep to. (laughs) It's overproduced. Those backing vocals and the strings, it just, I don't know. It's not Blue Velvet. No, (laughs) that's true. Now, interestingly, in the US, it topped the Billboard chart starting on January 4th, 1964, and remained there for four weeks before being replaced by Want to Hold Your Hand. So this was the last U.S.-made number one hit before the British invasion. So that's one of the things that the song was known for. And 
I think it's kind of interesting to think that because this does kind of summarize what a lot of the pop was like in 63. Kind of the pre-Beatles sound. Poppy, unoffensive, the kind of dreamy vocal of Bobby Vinton. I mean, it sort of encapsulates that sound. That, that and and the Beatles about. themselves seem to have liked it a little bit better than we did. Yeah. This too was on the jukebox jury. It starts out with George saying, well, it's quite nice, but I don't think the public will buy it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And John said, get an old song and everybody does it again at the same time. Whatever. That's kind of odd. Paul's is a bit... Is he putting the song down or something here? Because I sec- think he is kind of. Secretly, teenagers don't want old songs brought back. Mm-hmm. But Ringo yes. seems to like it. He said, nice and smooth, especially if you're sitting in one night and not alone. <laughs> Martin has made similar comments in previous shows that, you know, some of these smoochy, smoochy songs were, okay, they're 50s versions of uh, Barry White. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's Barry White from the late 50s, essentially. Yep. Mm-hmm. But despite their comments, it was another unanimous miss from... The boys. I love you. Than burning inside. I love you. No use to This is not a new song. This is a song that was actually out originally in 1940. It was written in 1941 and came out in 1945 by Vaughn Monroe and his orchestra. And I guess somebody else must have covered it about the same time, which is why Paul's commenting on, you know, you bring an old song back, then everybody does it. Oh, I see. Okay. So that makes sense. Well, they voted a miss, but they were wrong. Yeah. (laughs) It was a hit. But, all right, for the final week of... 1963 on the British charts, December the 26th at number one. Still, I want to hold your hand. So Beatles dominated the month of December. There was the Christmas hit for 1963. Number two, She Loves You. At number 44, I'm in love by the foremost. Every night I can sleep, thinking of you. not a bad song but it's definitely lesser lennon mccartney yeah i'm not crazy about this one it does have telltale signs of a beatles composition particularly in the harmonies the unresolved chord at the end i mean those are kind of giveaways otherwise i can definitely see why they didn't record it themselves you know it's kind of an above average pop song but not great i mean i don't think it's even as catchy as hello little girl it could have been an album track the weaklings version is actually really pretty good I've heard that one. I hate to say this, but I've always thought that John Lennon had the right idea to get rid of this because it's a bit basic and almost like a case of can you write a song in five minutes because these guys need a hit single. Recorded and performed well, but it's a bit of a B-side to my taste. That is really good. Yeah, can you write a song in five minutes? Yeah, yep. that's kind of what this sounds like. I completely agree. 
And there is some slight question as to the complete authorship. In 1971, in the Rolling Stone interview, John said that he wrote the song for the foremost. And then in 1980, in the Playboy interview, and in Paul's authorized biography, they seem to be talking about it as if it were a collaboration. I don't know whether Paul wants to take any credit for this song, to be (laughs) honest with you. But it wouldn't be the only song that John has problems with that he agrees he wrote himself. Yeah. The Foremost were not actually the first artist chosen to record the song. Billy J recorded it, and, and his version is actually maybe a little bit better, but it was not released at the time. The Foremost version was chosen for the single, and Billy stayed in the can until the CD era. Wow. wow. And then the Beatles demo of this was released on the uh, Apple Music Beatles bootleg recordings 1963. So we have that as well. Yes, indeed. All right, so that closes out 1963 on the British charts. Join us next time. Well, immediately next, we have Side B, where we're going to talk about the American charts for the last month of 1963. And then next month, the calendar flips to 1964, and we all know what happens. Some pretty historic stuff. (laughs) Absolutely. Talk to you then. See you soon. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost, and is coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.